when when I was you know involved in student Christian organizing, and when I was uh, working with people who came out of the progressive wing or progressive departments, I guess is maybe better in progressive movements within the church and the ecumenical and the multi-faith uh, movement. Um, it wasn't like we sat around a table saying, well, okay, I have to translate their, you know, faith-based approach to this problem into my materialist uh, approach. No, no, no. I mean, we were talking about concrete analysis of concrete conditions and it was, you just felt you were in a room full of comrades to use that word. There was just no, we might've had different approaches to some of those things, but I mean, I have different approaches with people you know, within the party, people take different approaches to things, and that's why we have, you know, meetings and discussions. Um, I think a, a, a materialist approach to things um, is is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice, meaning that instead of having a preoccupation with are you an atheist or are you a, a believer or a, a faith-based person— the materialism sort of says, are we going to look at the conditions that are happening around us, try to figure out what's going on, try to figure out the best way to, to you know, to address them and to, to find a path that, that can build a movement to, to confront these and change them. I never felt that the Christians I was working with had any different approach than that. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean, a Catholic PhD student in philosophy at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto, uh, where I study Christian things appropriately, <laughs> uh, appropriately related to my institution. Yeah, legit. I'm Matt. I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. My research interests are media archaeology, cultural theory, Christianity, leftist politics, and I'm still knee-deep in trolls over here. <laughs> um yeah really good news really good news on the trolls front uh I, last week i said that it would be until 2020 until the trolls 2 came out but uh here's the really great news um that there will be a uh trolls holiday episode on netflix uh in december uh, that's what i'm talking about so i am ecstatic about that fact that's great i see what you mean earlier when you said knee deep in trolls because i thought well that would actually take a lot of trolls but it turns out there are yeah. a lot of trolls to, millions to get up to your knees millions of them all over my knees yeah, that's, that's good um I, w- I feel like uh they should they should do a remake of the the kids trolls but using like lord of the rings trolls like just disgusting Ooh, yeah. slobbery beasts you know forming uh primitive societies uh yeah that sounds good or like uh that's harry, the movie i want harry potter trolls are the kind of same way yeah exactly yeah someone needs to write us an email and explain to us how big massive gross trolls became tiny adorable uh large haired trolls yeah i'd love to know um you're the you're the media archaeology guy here yeah i don't know um there is actually this really good essay okay (laughs) well uh don't let me unleash all of this uh in this podcast but there's this really (laughs) good essay so there's this guy i think he's shoot i cannot remember his nationality not that's that important his name is Erki Hotamo, and he does this thing called Topo Studies in uh, the history of media. 
Uh, so he looks like he looks for like the uh, I don't know themes and variations in uh, in technology over a period of time. He has this one essay that is actually about the appearance of like tiny people in film and like in hmm. advertising. So maybe it's just another emergence of that kind of thing. I'd have Could to look, I'd have to look into it, but it's a it's a thing. It's a topos. So. <laughs> We'll uh, report back next week. We'll find out. Yeah, man, I need to get into this troll, this troll stuff. <laughs> well, uh, today on the show we are not talking about trolls. Sorry to disappoint uh, all you <laughs> all you troll heads out there, all you big hairs. Um, instead, we're talking with uh, Dave McKee, who is the provincial leader of the Communist Party of Canada here in Ontario. Um, but before we do that, uh, we don't have any iTunes reviews, tragically. Um, and as punishment, you have to uh, you have to listen to us talk about another political compass quiz that we took. Um, so we figured, like we figured out what we would be in the Russian Revolution last week. Turns out uh, I'm a Bolshevik. Matt's a, a left socialist revolutionary. Um, so we decided to figure out what we would be if we weren't in Russia. Um, and the results were surprising. The, the results will astound you. <laughs> uh so we took this quiz it's a specker s-p-e-k-r um it's a series of poorly conceived uh political axioms that you thumbs up or thumbs down yeah it's not great and uh not great no, questions in fact it, it is bad um but i ended up being a, a libertarian socialist which was a surprise to me yeah that doesn't seem quite right i mean you were a bolshevik last week and this uh this week you're a libertarian socialist so that's strange yeah you know who knows what I'll be next week? <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, I got pegged as a democratic socialist, not in the DSA sense, but like in the real, the real sense. <laughs> uh, sorry, DSA. Not in, not in the democratic socialist of America sense. No, but like in the uh, the real the real not Bernie Sanders sense. I guess is kind of what I mean. <laughs> the uh, the yeah, description yeah. on the website is: you support light restrictions on cultural reform and maximum restrictions on economic freedom. You oppose all private property rights and all uses of money, as well as the abolition of the state. Yeah, that's all good stuff. I do, I yeah, do support all sure. that stuff. That's good. Yeah, uh, I don't know what happened exactly as I was answering these questions. Um, I think the the thing that these kinds of tests really suffer from, uh, well, one of the things, is uh, it's hard to tell if you're answering uh, a kind of utopic question or like an immediately pragmatic question. So the, there I'll have a question that'll be like a... Do you think the government should provide, I don't know, like uh, welfare programs? It's like, well, uh, like right now, I guess that would be nice. But like in the future, I don't know. A boss say, like, we'll see. What well, I don't know. What Like, when are we talking here? This isn't Russia. <laughs> yeah. And uh, they're also, I don't know. I'm starting to think that these uh, political compass tests are the exact opposite of real leftist praxis. Um <laughs> Because <laughs> they're asking about all these like sort of like ideal situations. And that doesn't seem to actually help like there is there is one specifically that was um i remember thinking like this is so weird uh there's a question that was like should um individuals be able to um associate in cooperatives or communes yeah right and if you answered thumbs down that moved you to the left Right. And if you move, if you said, if you said thumbs up and moved to the right, and I'm like, that doesn't make sense at all because it should be the other way around. Yeah, exactly. And and in fact, um, well, okay, so you guys that don't know all the behind the scenes 
stuff. Uh, Dean and I are both reading this book on uh, Fidel and religion, Fidel Castro and religion. And there's actually this. It's th- extremely good. Yeah, it's by the way. so good. Oh my gosh, it's I'm like all about Fidel. Fidel's my my guy right now. <laughs> um, anyways, there's this part in the book where he's um, he's explaining how. Um, He's explaining to this journalist that there are um, still like private farms in uh, in Cuba. Well, there there were in the eighties, and uh, they um, they have the ability to like um, band together into cooperatives, and they even do. So like there, I don't know. There's a <laughs> there's an example of yeah. that exact thing in a real in a real communist sort of setting, and uh, it's confused in this test. It's also it's super weird that I got I'm I'm more um, authoritarian than you though this week. That doesn't seem it is weird. Doesn't seem right. No, I don't think so. I think it is wrong, in fact. But my favorite thing is, uh, so you can go at the end of the test. It's like, hey, what is a, and then whatever your result is, and then the test will explain it to you. But underneath that, there's a question of why this spec. Apparently, spec is the branding they're using here, and uh, it says, um, and if you click on it, it says, if you responded to all the statements on the quiz truthfully and without mistake. Then, based on your responses, it was only logical to be spec the way that you did, <laughs> uh, and it goes on to just make the most uh, brutally ideological, uh, closed-off um, perception of itself. Um, this isn't really a sentence, but you get you get the idea. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's just like uh, over and over. It's like, well, th- this is just how it is. Like you say yes and no, and then this is what you are if you're honest. <laughs> uh, and my favorite my favorite part is at the end of it. It says. If you think that Specker has mistakenly assigned you a spec to which you do not identify, like me, you have two options. Number one, examine your political opinions to determine whether they align with your result and change them accordingly in order to maintain your personal integrity. (laughs) Uh, Or two, take the quiz again and respond dishonestly to get the result you want. And uh, that is not not exaggerated that's what it says yeah i mean i guess that's what you have to do according to the immortal science of uh specker.orgism <laughs> that's right uh, i gotta go back and be dishonestly uh marxist this but time. It, this is like such a dumb thing though um it's like completely just only only what you think of these like weird scenarios they keep giving you and not um not what anyone probably thinks about in terms of praxis yeah my favorite one there was a question that was like um do you think that parents have a right to abuse and neglect their children? Or do you think that there should be intervention? And that's it. Like <laughs> what's the nature of that intervention? Who knows? What's the abuse look like? Who knows? But, uh, I'm, I can't imagine somebody, uh, promoting it, I guess. I don't know. Like who, who's like, yeah, totally. They should have that right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Um, I guess, <laughs> uh anarcho-capitalists i suppose <laughs> that's it <laughs> i guess yeah that's true yeah that's true though the uh not specifying exactly what type of intervention is a problem like um if you're a parent and you abuse or neglect your child like you get yelled at <laughs> like that's it or yeah. like what oh man yeah uh they also have a whole section on uh anarchism and they like have all these questions about anarcho-capitalism and first of all, that's a contradiction in terms. There is no such thing as that. Anarchism is anti-capitalist. Sorry, the end. Um, but also, uh, it does lead me to believe that there are some some real ideological motivations for this political compass. Yeah, for real. Um, okay, so uh, if you guys want, well, we we told you our answers, the answers to this uh, this weird quiz. So if you want to uh, go go check out yours and let us know on Twitter what uh, where it is that you fall in the in there. Are you uh, an anarcho-capitalist are you a right-wing fascist uh or are you somewhere on that good left that bottom left quadrant 
Um, so like tweet <laughs> us and let us know, I guess. We, I, yeah, I'd be interested go. in hearing everyone's weird answers. Yeah, uh, definitely a good excuse to do another uh, Christian leftist roll call. Oh, yeah. See who's out there. For real. So we also took a uh, a theological compass quiz, but to figure out which medieval theologian we would be. And uh, I got Hildegard of Bingen. Uh, what did you get, Matt? Yeah, same. Same. We're in the same place nice. there. That's funny. Yeah, it's good. Uh, she's very cool. There's a class at ICS about her right now. Um, oh, but legit. The description, the description is, uh, Hildegard was a rebel. She was probably the first female theologian to be really taken seriously. Well, I don't know about that, but probably she was very cool. Probably not true, yeah. Yeah. Uh, she was the doctor, a visionary, a composer, and an artist, in addition to proto-feminist. So, there you go. Quality stuff. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. All that good stuff. <laughs> uh, we look forward to your letters about why uh, that's bad news. <laughs> Some real angry dreads. Um, so we we really should have had uh, Dave McKee do these tests. I feel like before we interviewed him, uh, just to find out. I would really like to know what what theologian he would be. Yeah, that's that a good idea. Fun. We should have people do these. That'd yeah, be fun. We should. Uh, all right, we should think about that. Um, but we should also stop taking them. So please send us uh, iTunes reviews, or else we're gonna have to keep punishing you with these personality quizzes, and they're just gonna get worse. I gotta tell you. I mean, we're like we put the the best ones at the top. So <laughs> bottom of the barrel personality quizzes don't sound like a thing anybody wants to get to. So uh, give us those reviews, p- please. <laughs> please. Uh, All right, let's turn it over to Dave. Yeah, uh, we can just start with uh, what have you been up to, Dave? What did you do today? What what are you doing for work? How's it it going? (laughs) Well, today's been pretty good. I actually just, uh, I had a French class this morning. I take a French class once a week, so we... We talked in French as best we could about the situation of um, sexual harassment, actually. Mm. uh, I think people were thinking about the Harvey Weinstein um, news, and they wanted to talk about that. So, you know, I learned all kinds of new vocabulary. (laughs) So that was interesting. So then, uh, and then, you know, I popped into the office for an hour and then came here. So cool. Mostly I'll be doing a lot of admin work today, I think. So nice. Yeah. How about you guys? (laughs) Uh, What have you been up to, Matt? Um, a lot, lot of teaching still. Um, a few nights ago, I went to a concert with my friend, uh, a friend friend of the show, John Birmingham. We went to go see a band uh, called The World is a Beautiful Place and I Am No Longer Afraid to Die. It's a post-rock band. We went to go see them. It was cool, but we were the oldest people at the concert, so that was less cool. Just uh, <laughs> there amongst all the kids. So that was fun. Nice. Cool. That's cool. This Sunday, I went to a white supremacy uh, or anti-white supremacy rally, <laughs> oh. to be clear, uh, in Queen's Park in Toronto. And that was pretty cool. Pretty exciting stuff. Yeah. Communist Party Canada was there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Chatted with some folks for a bit. There. It was that a big was rally, wasn't it? It was big. Yeah. I'm pretty bad at judging crowd sizes, but definitely hundreds of people. Excellent. <laughs> yeah, it, looked, it looked good on, on the screen. Yeah. It was good. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so that rally was cool. Um, well, that rally must have been cool because... Um, Whenever you po- uh, you were posting a ton on Facebook after that, so I know you had a very positive experience. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I like never post on Facebook, so if oh. I do, it's you know just some real inspiration of the spirit there. Something yeah. stood out. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's good. <laughs> yeah, it's nice to see people moving into action in such a good response. Uh, yeah, with such a broad response too, right? Like, yeah, that's you know, right. Lots and of different communities. It's cool too to see it in Canada because, like, yeah. being an American living abroad, I don't know. Sometimes you kind of feel like. 
uh, what am I going to do? How am I going to express that I don't like something going on in my country? Right. And then to come here and then have people who are also like, well, this is actually a problem everywhere. So yeah. <laughs> it's like a nice way of feeling, you know, connected to, uh, I don't know, problems of injustice yeah. around the world and building yeah, those sure. kind of solidarity links. That's neat. Uh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. That's good. Yeah, yeah that's cool. Um, so Dave, we wanted to have you on the show uh, for a while, actually. I... Uh, I chatted with you at the Communist Karaoke night a long That's time right. ago about um, just Christianity and yeah. your experiences a little bit and, you know, what the party is up to and that sort of thing. So sure. uh, Matt and I figured, well, we've got a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. We should probably get a, a guy who knows a little bit about that <laughs> and is actually, you know, working hard with organized uh, politics in Toronto. To oh, very good. Out, so. Well, thanks for inviting me. It's nice to be here. Yeah, thanks a lot. So uh, maybe just to start, Dave, could you just tell us a little bit about the Communist Party of Canada? I mean, what makes it unique among other sure. left parties in Canada? What's kind of its general history? And, sure. You know, why why does Canada need one? <laughs> there you go. Um, well, the CPC, Communist Party of Canada, was formed in 1921. And it was inspired, um, the formation was inspired by the Russian Revolution, or the October Revolution, which is actually celebrating its uh, 100th anniversary this uh, next month. And it was interesting because at the time in Canadian history on the labor and the left, there was an awful lot of activity um, all around the country, but it tended to be um, fractured and fragmented, sometimes on a sectoral basis, like maybe resource workers instead of the trades or the industrial trades, or sometimes often it was uh, it was fragmented on a geographic basis. So you had like um, groups in Alberta, you had groups in Ontario, groups in the east. And there was a, a number of different ideological tendencies that were uh, moving around. So um, one of the groups that was uh, quite strong at the time was the IWW, Industrial Workers of the World, which still exists. Um, they were more of a syndicalist or an anarchist type of organization. But then there were others. There were some that were allied with what we would now look at probably as like the Liberal Party type of politics in the Canadian context. There were others who would be... Um, uh, the, the, well, there was just a, a whole range of different ideological um, and organizational principles that were at play. And after the Russian Revolution in 1917, um, and this happened all over the world, it wasn't unique to Canada, but there was um, what Tim Buck, uh, who was a longtime party leader, referred to as a thunderclap. And he said it just um, gripped people. It was a, uh, you know, it was a new event. It was the first time in history that um, uh, working people, workers had seized control and, and deliberately gone about building a different kind of society. And um, so this this kind of uh, this thunderclap that Tim Buck talks about is what led to the formation of the Communist Party of Canada. Um, it's continued through, you know, a lot of history and, and uh, some very great moments and some very challenging moments. Um, right now, it's uh, we're not a big party at the moment. We're a small party, but um, I think one of the things that makes it um, different among the left, uh, one element is that we participate among other, it, it would, uh, alongside other tactics, we participate in elections. And most of the political left in Canada, outside of the NDP, doesn't do that. Uh, the NDP, sorry for Matt's sake, uh, New Democratic Party, Social Democratic Party. Thank you. Um, yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> so the CP has. You know, we participate in elections, although it's not an electoralist party. We don't see that as the uh, the sort of single path to to seeking change. And we don't really hold to the idea that you can actually elect socialism. I mean, there is 
because of the nature of, of capitalism, because of the nature of class society, you do need to have a, a revolutionary rupture with that. It doesn't have to be violent necessarily, and we don't promote that in our program, but um, we also don't see that just simply working through the ballot box is um, is sufficient. That said, one of the other things I think that, um, and to me this is maybe the, the big thing that differentiates the Communist Party from other left groups, is that we see a connection between the struggle for immediate reforms and the ultimate struggle, or ultimate maybe sounds a little grand, but the, the broader struggle for revolutionary change. It's through that those struggles for immediate reforms, whether that's child care or jobs or uh, expanded health care, whatever, any range of issues, um, fighting for those reforms is enormously important for two reasons. One, it actually helps people in the, sh in the immediate term and it addresses their immediate needs. But also in that struggle, people tend to become more politicized. They they learn more about the the, the nature of the system that we, we live in. They learn... Uh, over time, not automatically, but over time, they learn more about its limitations and then ultimately about the need to have a more radical um, approach and ultimately a revolutionary approach in order to to safeguard, both safeguard the gains that we've won, but also to expand on those gains. And an interesting example right now might be um, in Venezuela, for example, where there was, a, you know, years ago, there was an election of Hugo Chavez um, and... As there's been an increasing pushback from the forces of the oligarchy in Venezuela, combined with wealthy uh, and transnational corporations in the United States and Canada and elsewhere, as that pushback has happened, we've seen that the people in Venezuela have become, not not homogeneously, but a large section of them has become much more radicalized because they see that, that um, they can only get so far without having more radical and more ultimately more systemic change. So it's this connection of reform and revolution that I think is one of the strategic and tactical differences between the CP and a number of other left groups. Um, right now, we're in, so I'm the leader of the Ontario Party, um, and right now we're actually gearing up for our uh, provincial election, which is going to happen next June, June uh, 7th, 2018. So we're beginning to identify candidates, we're beginning to... Um, We've, we've adopted our long platform. Now we have the, the task of making it into something that's shorter and you know more easy to distribute. Um, that's one of the tasks that we're looking at. And the other campaign that we're working on right now in Ontario is a, a province-wide housing campaign. Um, that's been going on, um, boy, since the spring, I guess, we started that campaign. And in that campaign, we're looking at agitating for a lot more public um, publicly built and publicly owned publicly controlled affordable housing alongside a lot of legislative change that would uh, not just freeze rents but roll them back because there's been this long period in Ontario not just Ontario but that's my area of responsibility there's been this extended period where there's been um, not a lot of affordable housing supply built and also rents have risen at, at a very a very high high rate and, and continuous rate and so people are in a position now where there's, um, uh, you know, there's 725,000 families or households rather across Ontario that are in what's called core housing need. This is a, a statistical category that basically means they're spending more than 30% of their household income on housing that is also um, 
insufficient, so it's in need of major repairs or it's crowded, this kind of thing. So 725,000 households, I don't know how many people that is, but if you, you know, it's going to be upwards of one and a, one and a half million people. Exactly. And, um, so that, that's been a lot of our, I mean, we've done a lot of other things in the recent period, but those are our two, um, I guess, ongoing and central preoccupations at the moment. Uh, cool, Dave. Thanks for sharing that with us. It sounds like, um, you guys have a lot on your plate (laughs) in terms of work to do. Um, so, uh, the Communist Party of Canada, um, is a communist party. Can you guys, can you, can you tell us a little bit about the ideological underpinnings of the party? Like, do you, are you guys a Marxist Leninist party or something else? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So we are a Marxist Leninist party. Um, we're not, that would be different from say, a, a Trotskyist party or a, a Maoist party, or, I mean, there's different names that people use, but those would be the main, um, I guess the main other versions. Um, we historically, the CPC was among the world parties that were uh, associated with the Soviet Union, as opposed to, say, China. Um, now, currently, we have um, a new international grouping. It's, it was formed, I think, in nine, uh, the mid to late 90s, and it's called the International Meeting of Communist and Workers' Parties. That's mostly the... Um, the parties who were historically associated with the Soviet Union, but it also now increasingly includes parties who um, had other international connections, but who've, um, you know, they, they've they've moved. Their their um, orientation has perhaps uh, developed, or or maybe developed is a bit uh, arrogant, but has has evolved or changed a little bit, as has the um, the views of some of the parties within the international meeting process. Um, so when I say we're Marxist-Leninist, so that uh, um, means there's a particular set of political um, political analyses that we use, and there's also some organizational principles that we follow. The political analysis is, is I guess, fairly straightforward. I mean, most people tend to be more familiar with that side of it. So it's it's Marxist. Uh, we look at class issues. We look at uh, we're heavily preoccupied with capitalism and the class relations and social relations that emerge from that, and how that connects to other areas of oppression. So, for example, uh, racism, patriarchy, um, homophobia, transphobia, ableism. Um, how how does class society? Um, use and reproduce those different types of oppressions and also looking at things like the envi- other social issues so for example climate change in the environment is a, a really it's an increasing uh, preoccupation with many many people um, and equally within the, the communist movement it's becoming a much more increasing preoccupation which is good um, so we will try to approach that issue and those others from the point of view of class society without being class reductionist, which also people tend to hear about within Marxist circles, you know, where people sometimes say, uh, well, we're not going to talk about women's equality because that's not class. And I mean, that would be a class reductionist approach. We don't follow that point of view. We would argue that, you know, these these are real oppressions. They have a real impact on society and on people in it. And it is part of how capitalism produces and reproduces itself. And so we have to be really cognizant of it. We have to recognize it. And we have to figure out how to confront it in a mass way. So that's kind of the Marxist, in a real tiny nutshell, that's sort of the Marxist (laughs) idea. The Leninist part includes um, 
more of the organizational principles of the party as well as, well as some um, some political principles. So the political principles would be Lenin did a lot of um, Lenin and the Bolshevik Party did a lot of um, uh, theoretical work, a lot of writing about issues of imperialism. What is it? What isn't it? Um, what does it mean to, uh, to to the working class in specific countries? What does it mean to the working class worldwide? There was also a lot of writing at that time about um, uh, national equality and national inequality, and how do we understand um, class unity on the basis of national equality? So that's also part of that's also comes from Marx, but a lot of it also uh, does come from Lenin. The other thing, though, that Lenin wrote about was the notion of the party, the, a communist party, or what's sometimes called a vanguard party. And that can be a tricky notion for people. Um, when you talk about a vanguard party, you're generally what you're talking about is the political leadership of the working class and its allies. And often it comes off as um, very arrogant um, to, you know, if I were to walk into a room full of workers and say, oi, listen up, I'm from the vanguard. <laughs> you know, I mean, they'd probably turn their ears off pretty quickly. And yeah. they and they should, right? I mean, it's it's not about me declaring we're the vanguard. That's That's kind of beyond simplistic. It's about recognizing the need for political leadership and then organizing to win that political leadership. And that has to be won and re-won and re-won all the time, right? Um, through through a struggle, whatever whatever stage that struggle's at, if it's in a revolutionary phase or if it's in a pre-revolutionary phase, which we certainly are in, in Canada and the United States as well. We're not in a revolutionary situation. Um, but there's still a need for political leadership. There's still a need for organizations to come together and, and um, you know, analyze the concrete situations, come up with uh, tactical proposals, and take those, uh, test those basically in the struggle, in the struggle of the working class and the people, and and then to revisit those and evaluate them. It's sort of a constant, uh, a constant dynamic dialogue in a sense. That's a little simplistic, but it's a constant dynamic process between uh, the party and and its engagement with all of the forces for progressive change. Um, the other principle that um, sometimes confuses people about a Marxist-Leninist party is the organizational principle we call democratic centralism. It, it's a bit jargony, but in essence what it means is that at any, um, any given moment, you need to combine um, the maximum possible d- discussion and input and, and democracy with um, a united decision in action. And so... Um, you know, I don't know, say you're coming up with, uh, well, we're coming up to an election, so we have to come up with a, a platform. So we have our convention, we discuss the platform there, and then we vote on it. And once we've voted on it and agreed to that the, that general platform, it's incumbent upon all party members to follow it. So I can't go charging off and say, well, you know, um, our policy is for... Uh, around uh, healthcare, for example, is to expand it to include um, eye care and pharmacare and, and some other things. I would be in the wrong if I went out and said, well, actually, you know, it's fine that uh, big pharma controls all the, all the pharmaceuticals and, and nobody gets uh, public pharmacare in this country or in this province. That's okay. If I were to say that, I would be um, pretty seriously violating the, the, you know, the party's decisions, which were democratically made. And chances are I'd have, um, you know, be called in for a meeting with some people to talk about, you know, uh, you know, you're on the wrong side of uh, our policy here and you've got to you got to not do that. Um, I like to compare democratic centralism with um, a more 
a process that most people are more familiar with, which would be, say, a strike vote in a union. If you have a vote on a final contract offer, um, you know, you're, you need to have the maximum discussion on that offer so that people can ask all the questions they want. They can point out the good and the bad. They can... Um, uh, they can they can try to identify any pitfalls that are in the language or or any you know any double speak for example. Um, they can try and convince, and they should try to convince one another of their view. If I think it's a crummy contract offer, it's incumbent upon me to speak to it and say, look, I think we have to turn this down for this reason. And similarly, if I think it's a pretty good contract, I should be saying we can live with this and we can build on this, and here's why. So that's the democratic part, and then the union. Um, has a vote, right? You have a vote on that offer, and it's it's on that offer. It's not on any different version of it because that's concrete. And at that vote, at the time of that vote, wherever you are, you have a choice to make. Um, if I think it's a terrible deal and everybody else votes for it, um, well, I'm pretty much bound by it unless I quit the job, you know? Um, and similarly, if I think it's a good deal but everybody else votes to turn it down... I have to make a decision. Am I going to be bound by this? And if I am bound by it, I'm going to be picketing with uh, my coworkers. If I'm not bound by it, well, I've got a choice. I can either leave um, or I, I could be a scab, which politically is, of course, repugnant. So um, you know, I wouldn't <laughs> do that. But, but I, I, th- I find it useful sometimes to use that example because it's something that people are a lot more familiar with and it helps. And it really is very, very similar. It's not identical, but it's very similar to the principle of democratic centralism and how it works in a, in a communist party. Um, that, uh, you know, you, you need a collective decision-making process. And if it's going to mean something, you have to have some way of carrying it out. You know? Otherwise, those decisions don't really mean very much if, if it's uh, all for one. You know, or, uh, not all for one, but each person for themselves. So. so I don't know if that kind of gets at uh, some of your question. Yeah, that's good. Um, can I ask one, one follow-up? Is that okay? Yeah, of course. Of course. Okay. Um, so you were uh, a few minutes ago, you were talking about like the, the Vanguard Party and how that functions. And uh, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about that. Uh, so I, uh, before we started recording, I mentioned that last night I taught a class on Marx, and it went some interesting ways. Um, so uh, there's one part that we, we talked about in class for quite a bit uh, that I'd love to hear you talk about being in a, like an actual communist party. Um, so in the second part of the manifesto, uh, there's, it's the part that's titled Proletarians and Communists, Marx, say, uh, Marx says that the communists do not form a separate party opposed to the working class. They have no interests separate and apart from those of the proletariat as a whole. And um, being being a party that is Marxist-Leninist and um, being a party that has to deal with this like sort of like vanguard idea a little bit, um, how do you all see yourselves um, expressing the interests of, I don't know, proletariat might not be the right exact word, but uh, mm-hmm. working class people as a whole um, in uh, Canada and Toronto uh, or Ontario right. specifically? No, that's a good question. Um so, uh, and maybe I'll start by just saying, like, the Communist Party is, uh, in, in, our, in our own program, in our constitution, we actually sort of uh, reference that, that quote or that, that formulation from the manifesto that you talk about. Um, <clears throat> we say we are a party of the working class and we have no interest outside of that. The, the party isn't just made up of working class people, though. I mean, there's... there's uh, it's a combination of workers, intellectuals, who you could argue are also part of the working class. Um, there's uh, people who have their own business. There's not many, but I mean, it tends to be rooted in the working class. But it's a 
it's the membership of the party isn't strictly limited to the working class, but its orientation is very much focused on the working class. And I guess there's uh, one of the reasons for that, I guess the main reason we could say for that has to do with our understanding of uh, social relations within capitalism. That capitalism produces the working class, and that working class is also the means to um, overthrow or defeat capitalism and build something different. And that has to do, I won't go into all of that because we start to get into some theory, but um, basically it has to do with how capitalism uh, generates social production, the working class people work together to make uh, all of production, but the the profit from that tends to be private. And that contradiction between social production and private profit is is the um, that's the key the key tension uh, in capitalist society. And so because we we see the working class as being the the singular, really the singular group that has the capacity to lead, that struggle against capitalism. That's why communist parties all over the world um, are focused on the working class. So how do we, what does that mean practically? Well, that's an excellent question. Um, the working class in Canada is roughly 80 to 85% of the population. And so you can imagine that's a, that's not a homo, homogeneous group. I mean, that's a, a lot of different um, income strata within that. There's a, a lot of different, um, uh, there's different ethnic groups, there's different language groups, there's, uh, you know, all kinds of, of, all kinds of things that could potentially divide, but also all kinds of things that bring different points of view on working class experience. So the experience of, say, me, I used to work in a large newspaper print shop here in Toronto. So my experience as a manufacturing worker in uh, a large urban center is very, very different from the experience of, um, say, a farm worker in rural um, rural Saskatchewan. And that's also very different from a logger in northern Ontario or a, a fisher on in, in BC. And so when we talk about being a party that's um, of the working class and oriented to the working class, part of that is involves trying, and it, it can be hard, but making sure that you're um, gathering, uh, that you're connecting with all those, as many of those different elements and sectors of the working class as possible, and using that information to bolster a more robust understanding of uh, the experience of the working class in contemporary capitalism in Canada now. Um, and then out of that uh, analysis, we work to identify different specific tactics for, uh, you know, what are the key campaigns that we need to work on and how do we want to work on those? What are the key demands? What are the key, uh, what's the balance of forces here? What are the key organizations that um, that we need to to help build? So that, um, that I guess, is is a big part of it. The other part of it is we, we do seek to... Um, to build alliances where where uh, where practical between the working class and other sections of the population. So an example on that might be war and peace. Um, you know, right now the president of the United States is in a, a war of words and a little bit more than just a war of words. A, a very frightening 
um, posturing towards uh, North Korea, towards the DPRK. And this has caused a lot more people to think about the potential of a regional war, even a nuclear war. And so that's not an issue for just the working class, right? I mean, a, a war is is going to, a war of that caliber wipes out entire cities and, and potentially entire um, civilizations. So when we're building the peace movement, our contribution to it would for sure to be to try to promote a sharper understanding of, for example, how imperialism affects uh, the struggle for peace and how it affects militarism. But also tactically, we would seek to build the broadest possible unity of um, uh, among the population in Canada. And that is going to include uh, working class and unions, and it's also going to include um, small business and potentially wealthy people as well. Um, and there's other examples like that. Other issues are much, you have less capacity to do that. If you were talking about uh, legislation for, or pushing a campaign that was trying to make it easier for unions to organize uh, new sections of the working class, you're probably pretty unlikely to find a whole lot of allies among the bourgeoisie. <laughs> but, um, you know, you might find allies among uh, other, you know, some sections of the population. So that uh, um, that that maybe is a little bit of information on how we would approach that as a party that's rooted in the working class. Maybe we can talk a little bit about what communist struggle looks like in Canada in particular. I mean, we've been talking about it already and you've been giving a lot of interesting um, perspectives on it. Uh, I want to go back to something you said earlier about um, like violence and being in a revolutionary situation mm -hmm. and how uh, the Communist Party of Canada isn't advocating for violence. It's trying to organize, nevertheless, for a kind of revolutionary you know, moment or something like that. Right. Uh, could you just talk about that? I think a lot of people on the left just, and myself included, you know, have a hard time thinking through those relationships sure. between violence, revolution, and a different kind of society. So, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, what does the party think about all of that? Oh, that's an excellent question, too. Um, and I think it's one that a lot of people grapple with and, and ponder when they you know, come closer to the CP and, or, or even just to come in contact with us. So, um, so our, our goal is, our aim is socialism, which as I mentioned earlier is you're going to build that out of a, out of a, a revolutionary rupture with capitalism. Um, but in order to achieve that, we, and again, I mentioned this earlier, we see a, a connection between the struggle for immediate reforms and the struggle for, revolutionary change. So our specific proposal is for what we call a people's coalition. Um, that's just the, that's the term that we use. I mean, it doesn't have to be that term, but that's just what we use. And what that would be, what we envision that to be, is um, a, a very deliberate um, movement of class and social forces who are willing to unite in a militant struggle for around a common program. And that common program would be to curb, to confront and curb corporate power, the, the power of, of capitalism in particular, or it's, I guess it's um, representatives in, in large corporations, and to fight for far-reaching economic, social, and political change. And so that would include things like um, a full employment policy, really, really massive expansion of, uh, of social programs in the country, um, a, a, very different, uh, a very different foreign policy geared more towards, geared, not more towards, but geared towards peace, 
international cooperation and solidarity rather than towards competition and militarism and war. Um, we, uh, we would call for democratic reform. Uh, specifically, we call for um, a version of proportional representation that's usually called mixed member proportional. Um, we see that as much more democratic, um, much more responsive to, to local communities and, and to the electorate and to the, to the residents. Um, a whole series of, of different programmatic and, and platformy kind of policies that we push for. But the vehicle for doing that is is what we call this People's Coalition, which would be a combination. And, and I think it's fair to say that we, uh, at least in the current situation, we would see such a coalition forming in what we call the extra-parliamentary sphere. So, um, you know, that's the, 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 the social movements and political movements that are not represented in parliament that don't tend to run as political parties that's the extra parliamentary struggle we think that's in the current situation that's the most decisive one ultimately though a people's coalition would grow to a point we we project it would grow to a point where it sought it was able to seek um a, a parliamentary reflection um and that could be through a, its own specific party or through uh, pressuring a you know, a special interest with a combination of, of other people. I mean, it, we don't, we try not to get terrifically prescriptive about the form of these things, but the trajectory of it is what we, we look at. So we have this people's coalition that would fight for, um, uh, within the, the immediate context, the present context for really radical reforms out of that, um, there would be, in all likelihood, a response from the ruling class. And this is what we see historically. We saw it in Chile. We saw it in Spain. We saw it in, uh, it, we see it right now in Venezuela. And there's other examples too, where the ruling class, um, you know, isn't really keen on giving up its, its power and its, uh, in society on, on any of those fronts, the social, political, or the, or the economic front. And there tends to be a reaction to these types of progressive movements when they get to a point where they're actually um, fulfilling some, some comprehensive change. At that moment, in, or in those moments where there's a pushback, uh, and it would likely be a severe pushback from, from uh, the ruling class, and it's in all likelihood it will be allied with international forces like we see in Venezuela. At that moment, then... Um, those are the uh, the types of moments where the people in the working class need to make some decisions. How are they going to defend the gains that they've fought for and won through a people's coalition? And often in those moments, you end up seeing uh, a much more, uh, a, a period of radicalization, a period of revolutionary consciousness moving through in, in a much larger way through the population. Um, even at those moments, it doesn't necessarily mean you're, you know, you're you're committed to a long drawn out or even a short civil war, um, but we never discount the possibility and the need to be prepared for such an eventuality. The reality is that in in Canada and the U.S. and most countries, you don't even have a, a large strike without having some form of picket line violence. Um, you know, scabs uh, rushing their way in and buses and, and injuring workers on the picket line. And similarly, those workers who are on the picket line um, defending their line, sometimes through uh, more uh, confrontational tactics, shall we say. We don't project uh, the, you know, uh, 
the use of violence as ever as the the first or even the favored option it's all you know it's uh it's costly it costs your your revolutionary movement it costs the the working class through uh, destruction of well obviously loss of life but also destruction of property destruction of the means of production which is the thing that we are trying to uh, that the working class will have to seize if if you're to build socialism but at the same time we um we caution uh, against being taking a, a naive approach which would be to say that you can just convince the bourgeoisie i mean that's uh, again maybe a bit jargon you can convince the ruling class to just you know that you've outnumbered them, that you've outmaneuvered them, that you've outbuilt, uh, that your movement has has built to a point where it's it's very powerful. In some cases, they may uh, leave on their own accord, but it's very unlikely. And it, it's um, we feel it's always important to look at history, which tells us that you do have to be prepared for those um, more direct confrontations. Um, but as I say, we would definitely work always to achieve those things in a in a in a way that avoids as much as possible avoids war but we do have to maintain and and what we've won and we do have to build upon what we've won um so and and certainly in the current situation um you know in canada and in many countries we're quite far from that that um that type of 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 conflict um we're at the one of the the people in the an old, older person in our party said once, uh, "If you think of a revolution as a bonfire um, in Canada, we're collecting firewood, <laughs> and <laughs> and really that's that's, uh, <laughs> you know, that's that's sort of where we're at, right? And so it's uh, so a lot of the work we do, we don't we don't tend to to dwell too much on what's what would happen. Um, we try not to be really prescriptive about, oh, here's our plan for socialism. In our program, we do talk about what we see as being key elements of building working towards and then building socialism in Canada but in our day-to-day year-to-year work right now we talk more about built the need to build unity among the working class um, the need to build that unity on the basis of equality so um, gender equality racial equality um, national equality for example and that means that we we end up going in uh, moving into the and trying to build more and more sophisticated um, movements to oppose those types of oppression, and ultimately that can can lead to stronger unity of uh, of the of the working class in all of its different um, uh, all of its uh, all of its diversity. That's kind of our work right now in the present, and so to do that, we end up working a lot on the struggle for. Um, for peace and against militarism, we work a lot in the labor movement. Um, we work a lot in anti-oppression struggles. Um, we're working, uh, for example, I mentioned in Ontario, we're working on the issue of housing. Um, right now, uh, with NAFTA, the North America Free Trade Agreement being renegotiated, we're we're campaigning hard um, within the movements and organizations, and obviously the labor movement and the is a big part of that. Working hard to um, to try and maintain, build and maintain working class unity against these capitalist free trade deals. So that's, I guess, the moment that we see ourselves as being in now. And as much as possible, we try to bring a stronger, uh, more comprehensive analysis of of the conditions that are leading to these struggles and um, some clear tactics for finding a path 
not only through those individual struggles, but a path that can unite them, unite the movements, and move forward into a more uh, a more radical struggle in general. That's all really helpful, actually, just thinking about how social movements operate in Canada and also how the party is trying to hmm. find its way with that. Um, I, like We've talked a little bit in the past uh, about how, speaking of like history, where socialism has actually showed up, one thing that was really inspiring to you were Christian-based communities in Nicaragua. Uh, so I thought maybe we would talk a little bit about that. And I have a story that might be interesting to you. So at this uh, rally against white supremacy this past weekend, um, I met a very kind evangelizing Trotskyite uh, who was, you know, just chatting me up about socialism. And uh, somehow, I forget how it got it came up, but uh, he asked something about why I was interested in communism. And I told him that I was probably going to go stand with the CPC. And uh, so uh, I said, well, I'm a Christian person and I'm really formed by liberation theology and Christian movements in Latin America. And I... Uh, I could kind of just see in his face this, this <laughs> moment of like polite kind of disgust, like, oh no, like you're one of those. Uh, and so he started talking to me about how, well, real materialist analysis, oh. you know, you really can't have uh, religion, et cetera. And I said, well, historically, we've learned <laughs> some different things about that. So I thought maybe I'd ask you about uh, your experience with religion and yeah. socialism and also uh, how you kind of see those two things as, in a relationship today in the communist movement in Canada. Sure. Yeah, so I mean that's uh, that's interesting that you asked that because I um, uh, for many years, I, in fact, I got first got involved with political and social activism uh, through uh, a faith organization uh, when I was uh, an undergrad here at University of Toronto, and um, so you know, like many people, I was raised uh, many people in Canada anyway. I was raised uh, within the church. In my case, it was uh, one of the larger Protestant churches, um, and so when I even though I wasn't terribly active in my church, that still is, you know, provided the frame of reference for, for a lot of how I understood what was right, what was wrong, what was good, what was bad, what I should do, what I shouldn't do, um, you know, your role in, in life. And so when I came to U of T, uh, there was a small organization, uh, a student Christian organization that did a lot of social justice work. And I was attracted to them for, for I guess, for that reason, that it was it was... Um, a, a narrative and an outlook that was familiar to me and that I still had some interest in. But at the same time, there was a real commitment to doing political and social activism. And that was also very interesting to me. And, and to me, it made complete sense to these weren't, you know, that one flowed from the other, really. And so in my case, yeah, you're right. I went to Nicaragua a couple times and um, learned a, a fair bit about uh, how the base community movement uh, I mean, I wasn't there for an extended period of time, but I was exposed to the base community movement, how it functioned during the revolutionary process in Nicaragua. And uh, because I was there just after the Sandinista government had been voted out, I was also learning how they continued that progressive work that, that with a transformative vision in a very different political climate. Um, I also, you know, I had the chance to read and study a number of, of liberation theologians, both um, Latin American liberation theologians were probably the one that were the ones that were most commonly read at that time, Leonardo Boff and John Segundo um, and others, but also a lot of uh, feminist theology, um, which, you know, is not, again, not homogeneous, right? There's a whole big range of writing in there. 
But that was also very interesting because it, it had a, a critical view of a lot of the um, a lot of the institutions of the of mainstream church and, and and mainstream theology. Mainstream, I guess, is the best word I can think of for it. Um, at the same time, trying to and uh, I think doing a fairly reasonable job approaching um, using that same narrative, in this case, a Christian narrative, to develop and and project a more liberative view either towards the poor or towards um towards various uh, towards nations in or countries in Latin America or towards women or or whatever towards the environment and so um that was a very you know it was a very dynamic process to be involved with it was um really interesting to read a lot of that and learn and be able to do it within that framework that I a was accustomed to, and B, which at the time you know was very meaningful for me. It, it didn't seem to be two two voices; it was one single voice, right? And I met a lot of people um, through that work, who uh, a lot of older folks, for example, who'd been in the student Christian movement for many years, who were seen, you know, they were elderly when I met them, but they also they were really inspiring. They approached very radical social change and a, a very consistent and um, selfless commitment to building social change within their communities and, and, and internationally, um, they approached it out of their faith. And that was, that was really, um, you know, I learned a lot, but it was also very inspiring for me. In my case, um, so eventually, I, I end up now. I'm I'm not a person of faith, <laughs> but um, in my case, that wasn't because I counterposed socialism to Christianity. It, it was just uh, at a certain point, uh, my views sort of moved in a different direction, my worldview uh, away from a faith-oriented direction. But I would still argue that I carry a lot of the lessons and the perspectives that I was exposed to, and that I learned, and that I used in those times. Uh, many of them still inform how I approach um, issues of organization within the party and, and, and currently even outside the party as well, of course. Um, I think that, uh, you know, there, the comment that the person made to you that you can't be a real, you know, real materialist or all atheists. And I've, I've heard people say that before. And I mean, I, I suppose there is a point in the discussion where, you know, you say, well, if 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 matter precedes all consciousness, then, you know, the question is, where does God come into this? Um, and, you know, I guess at that point, maybe there is some divergence of views, but it seems to me that that's so not the key issue. <laughs> and it's just, that's a discussion that we we just don't, I don't even see why we need to approach that discussion. I mean, there's it so It is very boring. It <laughs> is. It, it's boring. And it, it's sort of like the old, uh, you know, the angels on the head of a pin discussion, <laughs> right? Where we're, we're kind of nitpicking on, on, theoretical points that i don't really think come in need to come into play and really in a practical way don't come into play in the current in the issues before us i mean when when i was you know involved in student christian organizing and when i was uh, working with people who came out of the progressive wing or progressive departments i guess is maybe better in progressive movements within the church and the ecumenical and the multi-faith uh, movement um it wasn't like we sat around a table saying, well, 
okay, I have to translate their, you know, faith-based approach to this problem <laughs> into my materialist uh, approach. No, no, no. I mean, we were talking about concrete analysis of concrete conditions, and it was, you just felt you were in a room full of comrades, to use that word. There was just no... We might have had different approaches to some of those things, but I mean, I have different approaches with people, you know, within the party, people take different approaches to things. And that's why we have, you know, meetings and discussions. Um, I think a, a, a materialist approach to things um, is is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice, meaning that instead of having a preoccupation with are you an atheist or are you a, a believer or a, a faith-based person, the materialism sort of says, are we going to look at the conditions that are happening around us, try to figure out what's going on, try to figure out the best way to, to you know, to address them and to, to find a path that, that can build a movement to, to confront these and change them. I never felt that the Christians I was working with had any different approach than that. And so to me, there's miles and miles and miles of, of, of shared terrain in our shared struggles and to me that's what we need to focus on and that's a basis for um not just um it's a basis for unity and i don't just mean in the sense that well we will work you know i as dave the commie will work with um so you know dean the christian it's that we can actually work together in in similar organizations and in similar movements assuming we're comfortable with that. Um, you know, I, I don't think we ever really, I can just not even think of a time when we need to get into the that particular debate that was given, that the person raised to you about, well, how can you be a materialist if you believe in, you know, a, a higher power or have a theistic approach or what have you. And it also, I think, betrays a really shallow knowledge of what it, how people approach their own faith, right? I mean, I, I studied theology for a year uh, formally in, in a university setting in Ottawa, and there are many, many different uh, methodological and theoretical approaches to Christian theology, and I'm sure there are the same in, in theologies of, of other religions as well. And I met all kinds of people who had just uh, some really, really interesting and and you know uh not not off the wall approaches but you know schools of thought that really did lend themselves to um projecting or or dwelling on people's individual agency the agency of a human being i think is 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 really what's what's important and as i say there's just so much common ground between uh, a marxist and a christian and a uh, you know anybody of, of people of faith people who who are atheists people who are agnostic I mean we all can take that political and organizational approach that we have in common and I don't think it's I don't think out of that we unless we want to be divisive and nitpicky then we don't need to get into those those things that divide us there's there's just so much room to work and learn together and so much that even as a person with a materialist approach to things there's tons of issues that i i can't explain and so you know and and uh, that science hasn't explained so however those get uh, described however those get um formulated for for different communities of people i i, I think it's really uh 
kind of a sad divisive approach to for for people on the left generally to to get into that nitpicky and and um uh that that kind of argument i just don't think is is fruitful i, I don't really think that's a communist or socialist approach to things to be honest uh, i appreciate that yeah yeah me too <laughs> um well to start wrapping this conversation up uh dave i wonder if you could tell us um if you think there's anything that christians specifically can contribute to communist struggles in north america it's like there ain't anything that we're particularly good at maybe <laughs> well that's a very interesting question <laughs> um there uh and in fact just uh yesterday i was reading through a, a biography of um an ordained minister his name was a.E. Smith, I think his first name was, he went by his initials, A.E. Smith, I think his first name was Albert, and uh, he was an ordained Methodist minister in Canada who was also active in the Communist Party in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and I think into the 50s. There you go, Matt. Matt teaches at a Methodist school. Oh, so was, yeah, I was up? looking for some Methodist heroes. <laughs> yeah. We need them. We need and all so, of them. <laughs> so it was kind of interesting. I didn't read his whole, bi- I didn't get a chance to read the whole biography yet, but it's quite interesting because he talks about... Um, um, you know, he very much approached uh, communist politics from a point of view of of his faith. There's just no question about that. Um, it's not like he was taking party positions and then putting Methodist vocabulary around it. I mean, I, I think he really, you know, genuinely uh, approached the Communist Party and the fight for socialism as a religious person, as a Christian minister. Um. And I think one of the things that that you asked about a concrete contribution, and what, and this sounds um, a little odd, but one of the things that that does, I mean, we live in a society that is, you know, generally not atheist. I mean, it, it's not Canada is not a necessarily a huge church going society or or synagogue going society or whatever, but it, it's still, I think, a very you know the dominant sort of soft ideology is is still very much shaped by the parameters of that are very much shaped by in particular christianity and so one of the things that um, people of faith can help with in this struggle is when they get involved they bring a certain um sense of uh, a moral justification for the work it's not just there, you know, if I go out and say, well, here, based on my analysis as a materialist, yada, 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 yada. I mean, I wouldn't talk like that, but, but I mean, if, <laughs> you know, um, but, you know, if, if I were to do that, um, there's often a hesitation for people to, you know, because I'm using a, a point of view that they're not used to. Most people in Canada are not Marxists, and I guess probably most people in the United States, probably most people in the world are not Marxist or have even really got a strong familiarity with it. But a lot of people have a familiarity with um, a general Christian narrative or a biblical narrative about things. And so having uh, different faith communities get engaged with struggles around uh, indigenous rights and justice, around the environment, around anti-racism. I mean, what this does is it helps bring some a. a vocabulary or, or parameters for discussing it that more people are familiar with. So that's that in and of itself is enormously important. So you're you're helping to broaden the struggle. Um, and and incidentally, I don't mean that faith communities need to, you know, take the Communist Party's view and then just 
shape it according to their own vocabulary. I mean, that like translate. And then, no, I mean, I think there are lots and lots of faith communities that have a genuine faith-based approach to these these issues. And when they do that, they tend to help broaden the discussion. They tend to help broaden the involvement of people. And it also brings, uh, for a number of people, it brings um, a, a moral justification. You know, a lot of people are guided by individual morality, and it helps them feel comfortable and getting and feel confident, I guess, about being personally involved with what in some cases is a pretty long-term and thankless job, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> it can be pretty frustrating and people get burned out. And I guess that's the other thing is that um, for all of us, we all have our sort of, um, whether it's our, our particular narrative or a particular community that we, we are rooted in, um, as political and social and economic activists, it can be very important just to have something that, you know, a, a narrative that you can come back to that is liberative, that is transformative, and that gives you a new breath of air into your exhausted, tired lungs. You know, you, you go out and you work and you work and you struggle and you try and ha you have meetings and you organize people and you take a lot of flack from people sometimes <laughs> and you, you don't get to sleep in every weekend. Um, and it's really important to have those different settings where people can have that breath of fresh air that rejuvenates us and carries us back in. And, and I know that, um, different communities and different organizations, we all, we all provide that to our members and we, we all provide it in different ways. So the communist party provides it to our members one way, a church provides it to its members another way, um, but sometimes, and I've seen this, the way that um, those narratives get um, uh, get visited and revisited and um, used to help reinvigorate people, they can cross pollinate. You know, there are there are things, as I said, there are things that I learned when I was a Christian social justice activist that I find really still really helpful in my work at the Communist Party right now as the Ontario leader. Um, and similarly, I, I, I've, you know, when I've worked with, well, I mean, you just, you cross pollinate your approaches to these things and, and that's really helpful. The other thing that's kind of interesting, I think about, a um, a, a, a faith-based approach to social justice is because it's from a different, you know, we, we'll have a lot in common for sure. We're spending all this time analyzing these, these concrete conditions, but often what, what grounds us and what guides some of our approaches is a bit different, maybe. It doesn't have to be different, but sometimes it is. Or even just the way we describe the approach to the issues is different. And that can be really important because, um, you know, people learn in so many different ways. We communicate in so many different ways, and we have all kinds of different experiences, some that help inform us and some that, of course, become barriers to us learning. And I find that, um, you know, we've taken on these, we take on this massive task. It's it's exhausting and it's comprehensive. It's uh, it's revolutionary, really. You know, it is so so big the task that we set before ourselves, and it's so enormously important to have as many different voices helping us to comprehend what happens around us, helping us to uh, deepen our understanding of issues. Um, take a, you know, it helps. Um, there's not, you know, we say there's two sides to every story, but there's actually often there's there's a hundred, a thousand different sides to a story. 
and to hear those different sides to the story or to hear those different approaches to the same, even the same side can really help each one of us and all of us together to flesh out our analysis and come to uh, positions of deeper unity and, and um, come to positions where we have stronger tactics and stronger commitment to those tactics. So I think those aren't all specific to what Christian con- Christians can contribute, but I think that there really is a richness to the struggle and to the organizations in progressive struggle that can benefit from from having a more uh, a more open approach to each other sometimes and a more certainly more integrated approach to how we look at things. Even though you know, at the end of the day, I'm a Marxist Leninist, but um, as I say, that doesn't need to be a barrier. And and um, there's probably well, I know there's a lot more common ground than we often think of. And sometimes having those those shared experiences really helps us to understand that common ground and it it opens it up for us so christians can contribute to being christians i guess yeah yeah that's a good way to put it i mean yeah for (laughs) sure i like that yeah yeah (laughs) yeah that summarizes it well (laughs) (laughs) cool uh well thanks for spending so much time with us Uh, it's great to sit down and talk with people who are actually on the ground and organizing and um, you know, I can speak from experience. The Communist Party of Canada is very kind and welcoming and <laughs> fun to hang out with. So uh, <laughs> it's it's nice too to see. You know, there is a, a there is definitely a place for people of faith in a lot of leftist organizations. And yeah, um, yeah. Hopefully, uh, people can kind of find what groups are out there where they're at um, and link up to them. That's a cool thing. Definitely, definitely. And thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed. Yeah, this. thank you so much. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Thanks, Dave, for coming to the show. Um, appreciate that 100%. So if you're in Canada and looking for a great way to get involved, maybe check out the Communist Party of Canada. Uh, go to a meeting. Um, go do karaoke with them. It is very fun. can speak from experience. <laughs> um, also, uh, as always, you should follow us on Twitter, at The Magnificast. Uh, like us on Facebook. Uh, subscribe to us on iTunes and SoundCloud. Those would all be very good and helpful. Um, if you want to support the Magnificast financially, you can also support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash the Magnificast. All right. Thanks for listening. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no dam between us and our Lord Jackson, you keep your hoods up You keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, you keep your hoods up Well, you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early. At least I would have, how you gonna do?